Welcome to the Potion Podcast, your raw look at the hospitality industry, brought to you by SHC. This week's episode is proudly sponsored by Bar Green Ellington for all your restaurant and bar needs. Visit bargreen.com for the full portfolio. What has happened at Post Shift? Just welcome back to another episode of the Post Shift Podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Sean Sewell. Um, today, I'm talking to a brand new craft distillery out of Seattle. Now, most people look at craft spirits and go, you know what? I need to put out a gin. I need to put out a vodka while I'm working on my whiskey. These two ladies were like, mm, no, screw it. We're just going to do a Pacific Northwest inspired um, Amaro. And that's what we're going to put out in the middle of a pandemic. Um, so I'm really looking forward to their CSR is just insane. Their corporate social responsibility is insane. Um, they're using local purveyors all like Escara from a local coffee roaster and truffles from a, a local truffle producer. And well, can you produce truffles or you just forage truffles? And I'll have to get to the bottom of that. Um, but I've got the ladies from, I've got Jamie and Holly from um, Fast Penny Spirits in Seattle. Welcome ladies, how are you this morning? Great, lovely. See, I told you everything would be fine once we start streaming. The pictures are beautiful, everything. Um, <laughs> so I'm always, I, I always start off with people's origin stories because I think that's really important because to get, for people like us in the, the craft spirits industry, passion is always very, very important. And very, very rarely I've had guests on my show where they're like, I got into craft spirits to make money. Um, because if you, if you get into craft spirits to make money, you kind of are on the back foot already. Um, so Jamie, let's start with you. Um, your backstory is really fun and I really want, uh, my listeners to get to know you. What, what, what sort of pushed you and where, where is the inspiration to starting in a Pacific Northwest inspired Amaro company in Seattle? Well, it goes back to childhood, believe it or not. So I'm uh, half Italian. And so I grew up with family members making liqueurs and wines and things like that and tasty food for the family. Um, and so I kind of had a pretty broad palate. And in my 20s, I got to travel a bunch to Italy and Europe and really fell in love with Amaro and um, used to go seek out the regional Amari and see if I could get some stuff that wasn't here in the US, which is really easy to do because there wasn't <laughs> much in the US. Um, and so I always had that passion around that um, and a, a passion around food and flavors. Um, and then in, um, boy, it was spring of 2017, my husband and I were our evening at a local bar and um we've got some connectivity I've we're going to push through we're going to push through this don't stress <laughs> about the pauses we're going to keep going the the funny thing with i think with amaro and amari people but, don't really get is that if you do go to every town in italy they have their very own everybody looks at averna and montenegro and stuff like that and they think that's the sort of standard for that massive region in Italy. But you go to every little township and every little township has a different yes. Amaro or different bitters. Yeah. So 27, spring 2017, you are going to cut out. So I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep circling back and reminding spring 2017, you're at a, a restaurant with your husband drinking Amari. Oop, and, I've, and now I've lost Holly. Okay. <laughs> this is going to be a fun, <laughs> this is going to be fantastic. <laughs> right. Um, so spring 2017 for, um, you were at a restaurant drinking Amari and what sort of, what's, what spurred you to go, you know what, I want to do this in the Pacific Northwest? 
Well, we asked the bartender about American Made Amaro, and they served us a couple that they had, and they were they were good, but they were a little simpler than I was used to uh, with a more complex Italian style. Um, and so it put a little bug in my head. I was looking at doing something different other than digital work. I did digital mm -hmm. and consulting work um, for over 20 years. And so um, I started researching how to make Amaro and the market for the Amaro. And I just decided that's what I wanted to do. And so in August of 2017, I started the business and then wow. started like over two and a half years of recipe trials. And I've, I've helped develop a Amaro here in BC in uh, the Naramata. And it is a lot of trial and error. Like yeah. it, it is like making a, a cooking a pie or making food where 10 mils of something just kills mm -hmm. the whole entire batch. 10 mils of too much, 10 mils too much sarsaparilla. It just tastes like bad root beer from your childhood. T t too little yep. and it's bland. And so it's really funny. We did play with sarsaparilla and that quickly went out the door because I couldn't get the right <laughs> amount to not taste like root beer. Um, <laughs> and I love root beer, but that's not the flavor profile we're going for. So. <laughs> and so for, for the people who haven't tasted um, the fast penny, what, what sort of, what sort of macro brand would you say is close to, what you're trying to sort of was the one that you were going after. So you were saying Sicilian. So Averna obviously comes to mind when you when it comes to that. What sort of one were you sort of like picking out and going, you know what, that's the flavor that I really, really love, but I want to make it PW style? Uh, I do think there's definitely some influences from Averna, um, but we really wanted to make it taste like it came from the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. So I think we were looking at more the medium category for Amaro, but but really, it we looked at Nonino, we looked at like a, a bunch of different uh, Amari um, for inspiration. Uh, we didn't want to copy any of them, but mm -hmm. we just looked for for inspiration from them. So Holly, how did you how did you meet up with Jamie and start? Because you've been in the craft spirits business for a really long time. Like really, when you look at it, uh, Big Gin Captive Spirits is like one of the very first like. Seattle-based craft spirit movements. And we were talking off camera. We met ten, over 10 years ago. Yeah. And you kind of look back at craft spirits all in the Pacific Northwest 10 years ago. Everybody was getting licenses. Everybody was opening distilleries. A handful actually are still around. Um, how did yeah. you and Jamie connect? And how did you get into craft spirits and then make the connection? Um, you know, we had a mutual friend and... I sat on the Washington Distillers Guild board with him and he was helping Jamie license um, the Americano brand name for our Amaros and, um, and Fastpenny. And he kind of connected us in 2018 and kind of got the conversation going. Um, I wasn't a hundred percent sure I wanted to do, do this again. You know, it's a lot of work, as you already alluded to. Um, and I knew that I knew that it would be. And this is obviously a very niche market. Um, but the give back, um, you know, working with more sustainable options and having that flexibility, all those different pieces really drew me in. And so I came on board in June 2019 and we we kind of started 
getting after it. <laughs> so with, with launching a new spirit, obviously launching a new gin would be difficult. Obviously, when COVID hit in March 2020, I'm guessing you were pretty much too far gone to stop. Like packaging would have been done. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> recipes were finished. Was there a moment where you were like, and I swear on my podcast, so I can I can say so was there a moment when you were like, fuck? Um, should we not do this? Should we hold back and wait? Or was it let's just get it out there in the world and see how it goes? Especially, especially for a category of spirit like like the Amer Americano, where it is gonna be very on-premise focus like getting the bartenders on board with it is like the first place to get it into retail and, and so and then you don't have on-premise anymore there's no restaurants or bars open was there a moment when you're like can we hold back or did you just go full steam ahead and like let's see how it goes i think our baby was ready to be born <laughs> <laughs> yeah we jamie and i were in very different places with this um and she like she didn't even blink she just was like, this is happening. So hold on. As whereas I was like more tied to that, like build your brand in the bars. Mm -hmm. Like all my friends are closing their establishments. They're getting laid off. Everyone's like losing the distributor jobs. I'm like, oh my God, this is not good <laughs> to launch a brand into. And, um, and you know, we kind of just hauled up and continued working together and quarantined together wow. um, and uh, kept working at the distillery. And it was just her and I and her husband would come in and help out. And, um, and that was kind of, that was kind of it. Yeah. We just kind of flipped our strategy from getting a distributor, going through restaurants and bars to D to C. So mm -hmm. direct to consumer, we had a huge push. So then we were looking at how do we become licensed alcohol shippers? Um, you know, how do obviously we, being in how Washington, they always have to throw more stuff on being in Washington. Oh, you want to ship it yeah. yourself? Well, you need another license for that. Yeah. <laughs> and then how do we get the word out? And so we started focusing on social media. Um, we ended up, another thing that we did early, way earlier than we would have expected was we opened a tasting deck. It's outdoors. Mm. Um and we kind of had to do that to survive through the pandemic. And we've luckily the community has rallied around and and really supported us. Um, so we've done we've done well given the constraints. Um, and then Holly's done a really nice job of reaching out to different partners and for collaborations, for pop-ups at our mm. distillery. Um, and we've been able to support other small businesses. They've supported us. Um, so that's, that's been really helpful. Do you think that's the, 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 the nice balance between your two relationships? Like as Holly was saying, like really focus on the OP, really focus on the bartenders, that sort of thing. And then your side of things is like, let's do DDC, which to be honest, for most craft distilleries, when COVID hit, like, especially here in BC, most of them were not set up for yeah. direct to consumer or online e-commerce shipping and stuff like distillers that have been around for like eight years yeah. did not have an online store and i'm like i'm talking to them because part of my business is e-com and i'm like so you're gonna do this yeah. like i don't think we need it i think people will still come down to the distillery and pick up i'm like they, no they won't what are you talking about so did dc like launching june because you launched june 2020 right uh july technically july. Yeah. well yeah. wow and <laughs> brand new brand a craft tomorrow and then focusing on the dtc e-commerce did it 
did it meet your expectations? Did it go past your expectations? I think on the DTC, uh, I would say it went past our expectations because, as you said, we were a brand new brand. Mm -hmm. um, the the great thing is, I spent my career consulting on um, direct to consumer <laughs> and business to business um, marketing and um, engagement, and so that really helped. That's why I I, I think. I think we were a little more undaunted to go down that path. We already knew we were going to have an e-com. We already had that built up um, system. Um, like we knew we were going to head out that way. We just thought it would be a small portion though mm. <laughs> of our sales. And it ended up being probably over 75% of wow. our sales in 2020. And for yeah. when you launched, did you launch both Amaro's at the same time? The we Bianca... Okay, so um, explain to everybody listening, what's the difference between the two Amaros that you have right now? I think the biggest difference is in the sugars that we use. Okay. So we use a burnt or toasted sugar um, primarily in the uh, Maracano, which is the red one, the darker one. And we use a caramelized sugar um, syrup in the Bianca. And they pull out different parts of our botanical builds based mm -hmm. on that. Fact. So the Bianca is like this candied lemon, floral, kind of green earthiness with a little bitter. Um, and the uh, Americano is more of that chocolate, black truffle, um, um, kind of earthy, um, bitter, a little bit more bitter. There's also nice saffron that comes through on the um, Bianca too, which we get here in, in, in Washington State from Chelan County, which is pretty Oh, awesome. wow. So I'm going to get into the the local purveyors in a second. Um, Holly, you've been doing this for a while. How have you seen the craft spirit movement change over the last decade? Because I remember, I, I remember Big Gin, and I remember the things that we were doing up in BC. And it was obviously BC's pretty much grown the same sort of speed. Like we have 80 distilleries now in BC as a province, and everything. Like you can see behind me, like that whole wall there. I'm going to go this way. That whole wall is BC craft spirits. So I have 150 BC craft gins right now. Yeah. Do you? How's the the craft movement changed? Is it sort of because back 10 years ago it was. I know Oregon and Washington was giving out licenses for a couple of hundred bucks and everybody was grabbing one. And then you're like, well, yes, you've bought a, a $500 still, you've bought a $200 license, but you haven't thought about packaging, labeling, marketing, so on and so forth. How have you seen it change and evolve? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've definitely seen it grown up. It, it, it has, has grown up quite a bit. Um, I think, you know, everyone is, the grain to glass idea is a lovely idea for one particular concept. Mm -hmm. I think everyone is, is looking at the bigger picture and saying, is that always the right thing to do? Right. Um, and we will get into that a little bit more with our production about the direction we've decided to go, but looking at sustainability instead of just like this weird ethos that was developed to pass legislation. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I think in general, people are, are not, uh, distilleries are not looking at, you know, what their neighbors doing as much as what's going to work best for them and what their plan is. And they're, and they're looking at it more as a, as a business, which mm -hmm. I am surprised that some haven't 
um, early on in the game. It was a hobby for a lot of yeah. people, you know? It was like the beginning of the brewery scene um, in, in, in the 80s where, you know, people were just home brewing and then they slowly like were selling, you know, jugs of beer. Um, and then they slowly turned it into a, a viable business. So I, I think, you know, distilling growing up, um, I think we see that in the competitions for sure. We're seeing a lot more interesting um, products being developed, a lot more innovation um, and a lot more money being put behind it, you know. So what what uh, when you were saying about base spirit for how your production goes um, here in BC, we're still a little bit behind. We have to do to be craft. You have to be 100 um, percent agricultural, BC agricultural based ingredients that you ferment on site and distill. And so we have, I would say, 97% of the distilleries here in BC still have that theso, uh, ethos. And then you can only release 50,000 liters to 100,000 liters. There's a bit of a tax difference there, but really everybody caps everything at 50,000 liter production. So it really is a scalable business. You can't really do much once you get to the size of like Okanagan Spirits and Sheringham and those big sort of the, the bigger craft guys. What's your base, what, how's your process go when it comes to making all the products that you guys make? Yeah, and, and just real quick to touch on what's happening up there, I think that's a little unfortunate because they're not mm -hmm. looking at the, sustain, the sustainability of, the, of that business model and that's not super fair. I mean, what's fair? But <laughs> like, that's not super fair to to those businesses mm -hmm. in a number of ways. Um, for our model, we are um, we are using uh, West Coast grapes, mm -hmm. which oh. um, so they can come from Washington, Oregon, or California, um, and they're distilled in Northern California um, out of upcycled wine. So wine that's been, um, you know, that's had smoke taint or it's just higher alcohol content than mm -hmm. what the winemaker decided. Um, it's a combination of biodynamic, sustainable, um, traditionally farmed, organic. Um, so that's all that's distilled for us. And we, we get that shipped up in totes. Um, and it's a great way to use something that would otherwise be, you know, all the energy and efficiency that goes into growing grapes would otherwise be complete garbage. And wow, um, I think, you know, reassessing some of these options is definitely the distilling industry is moving in that direction and in innovative ways. That's super interesting. Great based. Cause I know like, as, as we were talking about Italy and the different Amaros, great based spirits as a, as a base for Amaros and grappas and that sort of thing is definitely something that's sort of very pertinent. Um, do you think, and I'm going to throw this one back to Jamie actually, because it sort of folds into everything local suppliers, as you were saying, do you think as this sort of craft local movement, especially in the Pacific Northwest has grown. Like you were saying, you get truffles from a farm, you get saffron from a pit, like a farm in Washington, which is just insane um, because most people would be just buying saffron in bulk from like India or that sort of thing. So I saw truffles, what did I see on the website? Truffles, saffron, cascara, which I think is super underrated as an ingredient in, in, in liqueurs and stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And what else did I see? I saw one other thing. Um, do you think that the the rise of everything breweries wineries distilleries this sort of local push has made it easier to 
sort of support local and not even have to look outside of the Pacific Northwest for most of your ingredients, Jamie? Um, I think it helps for sure, um, but I don't think the Pacific Northwest doesn't grow enough of the products for us to, just to be Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. uh, we get some of our stuff in California and then we look globally for the best products that are organic, sustainably farmed and so forth. So, um, and that's true of Italian Amari too. Uh, they're not just using the regional stuff, although that's hugely important to Namaro. Um, but they're also looking for the best ingredients that are also global in nature. So let's move into your CSR because your your corporate, as I said off camera in my intro, your corporate social responsibility is it's not tucked away like most companies. And I'm going to do most companies as a generalistic thing, tucked away in like a little tab at the very bottom that says corporate social Yours is literally in your about section. The, the first thing you say is about the movement for women-owned businesses and the 3% the give back that you do. Was that, obviously I know a lot of big companies do it as a, almost like a sales gimmick and a, oh, we're ticking a box, but this seems like it's folded directly into exactly your mandates that you had from the get-go before you even started the product, before you even thought about the labels. It was like, this is what we're going to do. What was the real driving force behind that for you? It was definitely, I mean, I started this and Holly joined for similar reasons, but I started this company to make a bigger impact on the community. And so there was no question in my mind that there'd be a give back from the very beginning. Mm -hmm. um, that was really important. And we do the 3% um, bottle sales give back, but we also do a lot more give back. Besides that, we do in-kind donations and we, do, we support other um, nonprofits um, wherever we can. And, you know, last year we ended up giving back 5% of our overall sales. Wow. So um, that's definitely a really important part of, of what we do here at Passpenny. So. And that's just the way it is. The, 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 no one's the way it is. Do you well, think that? And I, I think it's important to add to Sean, just, um, you know, that first year that we were open, we weren't really sure what was going to happen. Um, and we weren't sure like where our sales were going to land, but mm -hmm. we made a commitment to start at that 3% at the beginning because it's really hard to fold that in after your business gets rolling. Um, and then we had, you know, we weren't able to get a distributor um, because of everything. And we were looking at the amount that we essentially saved, you know, from, from direct sales. Um, and I say this knowing full heartedly, we will need a distributor and distributors are amazing and have really great roles in building brands. But last year we were able to take some of that money that we saved and redirect up. So, I mean, ideally like Jamie and I have been, have been talking about, it'd be great if we could find distributor partners that also choose to, you know, invest in us as a give back um, and invest in female led businesses. It's been a crazy conversation and it's been, it's been kind of a, an interesting ride trying to find that right partner. Right. 
Really? I, for me, like if I knew that every time I bought a, a case of spirit, that a portion of that was going back to something, um, it would definitely push me towards buying something a bit more like we have a, a spirit here in the Okanagan um, called Evolve Gin. It's their, their blue gin. And a portion of that goes back to the LGBTQ community every single time you buy a bottle. It's just like, okay, so we're not going to have another purple gin that will stay unnamed because it's available everywhere. Um, we're going to go with this one instead. Um, especially after the cease and desist order that they sent out. Um, <laughs> so for you guys on a personal level, I, I'm going to throw um, this one over to Jamie for how do you see, like you've obviously been pretty happy with how you went. You've launched in a freaking pandemic. So it kind of mental. Where do you see the growth of like craft spirits as in part of your company and where do you want to see fast penny go over the next couple of years? Like what's the goal? Is there going to be a fast penny gin? Are you always going to stick to Amaro's? Um, what's the sort of plan for the company? Yeah, no. Um, so we're definitely sticking with Italian liqueur. Um, we're not going to, we're not venturing outside of that. Um, that's true to our core uh, and our, um, our vision. And so I think what we'll be doing, um, we're in talks with some different distributors. Um, and so I think our growth plan is through entering into different markets thoughtfully. When we enter into markets, we also do give back to those markets. Mm -hmm. So we wanna make sure we're doing um, it really consciously and thoughtfully, and we're partnering with the right distributors. So um, we have a great one that should be starting uh, next month in Georgia. So um, we'll have our products available there. Right now we're in Washington, Oregon, in California. We want to continue building that West Coast presence. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the education piece is a huge piece for us with Amaro. So many people don't know what that is, how to use it, how to drink it. And so we'll keep pushing on the education piece um, and and helping people to figure out like, wow, I really need this in my cocktail <laughs> lineup or in my, in my spirits lineup. So that's really kind of the areas we're looking at uh, to grow. Holly may have some more to add to that too. Yeah, for me, for education, it's always been weird because like I've been doing this for a really long time, especially here in Victoria. Um, you know, 100 hours a week for a decade and you think you've made a difference in the, the macro market and then you want a humbling experience, just go to a local liquor store for an hour and just watch what people buy. And the yeah. most humbling thing is, is like Mickey's of vodka and Lucky Lager still get bought and you're like, oh, nothing I've done for the last 10 years has made any difference <laughs> whatsoever. And then of course I joined TikTok and then that's a whole complete game changer on the macro market in such a weird, weird way. Like you think that everybody knows what Averna and Campari and, and Mezcal and stuff is. And then you've got people just from the Midwest, like soccer moms from the Midwest going, how do you use this? What is this? I don't understand anything you're doing. And so, yeah, TikTok's been a very humbling experience as well because you think you've done some good stuff. Um, Hollywood, where do you see the the brand sort of growing across uh, the US? And I do agree with the whole education piece for sure. Yeah, yeah, the education has been has been key um, on the deck um, at the distillery, and then like passing that through all the social channels and making sure, you know, when we do, you know, speak to media or do anything like this, that we include some sort of Obviously, you're well educated on this, and I don't think we need to have such an education with you. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's. Um, 
I think the strategic partners we've, you know, I have some great relationships from my time with big gin, um, with distributors. Um, so we're pulling on that a little bit and looking at some of the new alternative models as well. Um, and also just being open, being open mm -hmm. to the, the, the distribution world has changed so much in the past 10 years that, um, I think just being flexible and, and taking a chance, I think is important. I, I see the education model like 10 years ago, I remember having to educate people about gin, you know, like it's, it's kind of crazy. I talk to the kids, I talk to kids these days and I, a friend of mine sent me through a, a Facebook memory or something from a decade ago, um, raving about Aperol being available at the LCBO. And I'm like, oh, kids these days just don't know the struggles that we had a decade ago where you couldn't get Aperol. Like, I remember when Ramazzotti was released in BC, and I was so excited about getting my first case of Ramazzotti. And I'm like, this is really only like seven to 10 years ago, which isn't that long in the grand scheme of things, that how yeah. things have changed for the whole cocktail scene. Um, and especially with bars and restaurants open, I'm pretty sure that every nerdy bartender is going to be just eating up any Amaro that they can get, especially from you guys. Um, I'm going to pitch this last question because I don't really want to take up too much of your time. Um, what is the future of craft as a whole? Um, do you see, because it's always difficult, especially launching during a pandemic, there's no, but there's been no Tales of the Cocktail, there's been no craft spirit shows, there's been no ADI conference. So I find this from a personal level, it's difficult sometimes to know you're doing the right thing and pushing the right direction when you're not hanging out and conversing with people of like-minded nature that you, you sort of, that's, that's that little bit of social reinforcement, I suppose, you know, like that you're that working that, that extra hour and doing that extra thing um, from the future of craft have, because you've had that sort of disconnect from the whole craft movement as a whole from, the US, how do you see it's going to be going for the next five to 10 years for just craft spirits in general? And I'll pitch that to either of you. Yeah, I, to be honest with you, this past year and a half has been really interesting with social media, because you're just able to really dial in who you are talking to and, and what that conversation looks like. And because nobody's seeing each other, I think folks have been much more open to reaching out um, and not intimidated. Um, you know, early on in the pandemic, uh, Patrick over at Fascio Bruto in Brooklyn, he reached out on Instagram and, you know, and we kind of started going back and forth just because he had just launched his brand over there and it was just kind of crazy, you know, and different, different bartenders around reach out and, um, just the the social connections in general have have kept us tied to the community in a way that I don't think I don't know if it would have happened otherwise I don't think I think people would have been kind of preoccupied with other pieces um, as far as the conferences and stuff like it's great networking and it's you know it's really fun it saved us a lot of money. Um, <laughs> This is, this is true. Like, it saved us, saved us a lot of calories. <laughs> um, but like, I don't know. We miss it. We miss the, you know, I miss the networking with the people and seeing Christian at House Spirits and mm -hmm. you know, seeing seeing the ADI kids and the ACSA kids and um, 
and and seeing the huge crazy activations of William Grant at Tales of the Cocktail, you know. Um, so it's all it's all gonna it's all gonna happen. It's just taking time. Have you ever actually experienced Tales of the Cocktail, Jamie? I have not yet. No, we oh. we signed up for it, and <laughs> then it was canceled. <laughs> Yeah, the, the sketchy hotel rooms where you're pulling out little Mickeys of things and everybody's tasting all the Mickeys that are in everybody else's pockets. Yeah, it's a, it's a very different sort of show. Where do you see uh, being sort of – I'm interested in actually your opinion on this one, Jane, because you're sort of not necessarily outside looking in, but you're folding into something that's brand spanking new to you. And like like Holly was saying, ADI conferences and Tales of the Cocktail and the, the 4 a.m. tastings and – that sort of thing. Where, where do you see craft spirits moving this next couple of years? Cause obviously you have a vision of where, how your brand sits in the craft spirit movement. Well, I hope it, and, and what we're seeing right now, I hope some of this continues getting to know your customers a lot better because you need to. Um, we um, were lucky in a way that we didn't go with distribution in Washington state. Cause we've really gotten to know our customers, what they want. Um, also, the collaborations, I think I think that will continue, uh, and I think it's wonderful. Like, we did a collaboration with um, Maker's Mark in a local bar and um, did a uh, Black Manhattan using our Maracano. Nice. And um, that was really fun. And so it, I think continuing to, you know, partner, collaborate, and so forth um, would be important in the industry. There's also a group that we're a part of called Women's Cocktail Collective, and it's a group of um, spirits brands that are owned and run by women. Um, and that's been really helpful. Now there's, I don't know, there's 30-something wow. um, groups in there. And so now we're sharing ideas, um, going to each other with challenges and figuring, you know, helping to figure things out as a whole. Uh, and I think that's really wonderful and, and, and would like to see things like that continue. So obviously we've talked about the hurdles of the pandemic and a few other things. Um, for anyone listening, wanting to start a, uh, a spirit brand, what's the one piece of advice that you would give them? And I know Holly's, you've done this a couple of times, so you can't say don't, you have to give me an actual piece of advice. <laughs> but Jamie, how, what is, uh, what's your piece of advice before I let you ladies late go? What's your piece of advice for anyone who wants to open up a spirit brand, especially in the niche market that you like you're in? Make sure you're passionate about it because you're going to run up against a lot of hurdles, have some patience, do some planning, have a vision, it helps to have a mission and purpose um, for sure. And then you need to line up money um, mm -hmm. because it's an expensive endeavor. Okay. I want to dive a little deeper into this one before I give Holly a chance. Um, when it comes to line up money, how did you convey your passion to be able to get back? Because I know that I've talked to a lot of friends who have done restaurants and bars and small brands and stuff like that. And nine times out of 10, the people that have the money don't have the passion that you do. So how do you convey as a, as a new entrepreneur, convey that your passion can make money long-term and uh, bring a return? Because that's really what investors want. They want, when's my return? How much is it going to be? And when am I going to get it? How did you uh, jump that hurdle? Most of that. I think it broke up for a second. Nope. Can you hear me? I can hear you. I know. So how do you convey your passion um, <laughs> to it? 
to an investor who just wants a, a return? Not sure if you can hear me. Okay, give me a second. I'm going to jump over to Holly and I'm going to come back because then usually the computer will go, oh, now we can find you again. Yeah. Um, so Holly, for someone who wants to start out a, a brand, you've done it a couple of times now. What's your one big piece of advice? Um, you know, don't look around and see what everyone else is doing. Focus on what you're doing and focus on your plan. I think um, it's great to get inspiration and, and see what's happening in the world and, and follow along with it. But I, I think a lot of brands get caught up in what other people are doing and then they just try to replicate that instead of trying to actually innovate and create something new. Mm. They're making money over there. If I do the same thing as them, I'm going to make money over here. <laughs> which doesn't you just, work you just see that you see that a lot you yeah. see that in a lot of especially like the food and beverage world very very big time so going back to i think i've got a better connection with jamie now so uh, conveying your passion to a to a someone a backer a financial backer who usually just looks at returns when they're going to get it how much they're going to get back how do you do that successfully um because i think in the food and beverage world it is so much different than any other industry being a hospitality entrepreneur i think is much much more difficult because the long tail roi on any endeavor can be very very long term so how did how do you what's the big big piece of advice for you to do that for young entrepreneurs that want to get into this industry i think get very clear about your vision and your mission get very clear about what you think you can do and how you can add to the market not just be and and me too Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, investors want to see that they want to see the passion that you have for it, but they want to see that you've thought through everything and that you have a plan. Now, our plans don't always, you know, they don't always go to plan. Um, <laughs> but if you have a plan, it at least shows that initiative, you know what to do, you have some backup plans and so forth. And really, they want to see your passion. And, and for us, like, we made it clear, we're, we're pursuing B Corp status. And mm -hmm. so we wanted investors that were excited about that. Um, and we wanted investors that were excited about the whole social um, justice piece, uh, and the responsibility piece. Uh, and so we went straight out with that. And we thought we might eliminate some folks, but people got really excited. That's good. Um, so that was really positive. Because that's always the tough one is that from on personal experience, tough one to try and convey that sort of that passion and that that story without compromising what you want to do in the long run. Well, Jamie, Holly, thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, I Like I said in the very beginning, I think your story is just absolutely epic. Um, Holly, obviously known for over a decade and we've had the times up here in Victoria for Art of the Cocktail. Um, but just everything, like everything is so well thought out. It's just, it's refreshing sometimes because I deal with so much craft spirits here in BC. And uh, sometimes it's just like, I like gin. So I made gin. I'm like, awesome. That's not how that works. Um, but thank you so much for your time. I really, really appreciate it. Um, and I'm hoping that uh, once we can start traveling again, I can come down to Seattle because I've got everybody asking me to come visit and definitely come and visit the distillery and uh, do a bit of a face-to-face. -face. That'd be great. Yeah, love that. So thank you so much, ladies. I will uh this episode will probably be up next Friday. So I'll uh, send you links and everything when that goes up. Great. Thank you so much, Sean. Thanks for your time. Good to see you. Thank you. Bye.
Thanks for listening, Pose Shifters. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I really enjoy sitting down with friends and peers and uh, just chatting about the industry and getting down to the nuts and bolts of what's really going on out there. Uh, make sure you like, subscribe, comment, everything on all the platforms. Just hit it up and I'll do my best to answer any queries or questions you have. I'll see you next week, guys. Bye.